Welcome to A Life in Biography. Today I was going to interview Karen Christensen, but we've had some technical difficulties that I think is a problem with the app I'm using, especially when I try to interview other people. It seems to be working when I'm only speaking for myself. So I'm doing a kind of impromptu podcast uh, because I like every, I like to keep you regular. That is to have you know that my podcasts are arriving every Saturday. Although sometimes I deviate. I'm going to be doing a podcast. I hope if the technical difficulties can be worked out with Hans Renders, one of the world authorities on biography, and I was going to do that uh, the middle of next week. Uh, that may have to be postponed if my technical difficulties persist. But I think you hear me loud and clear. And so I want to say just a, a little bit about um, a favorite phrase of mine. The answer to one biography is another biography. Now, I've always thought about that in terms of one biographer succeeding another, dealing with the same subject, for example. So there are many biographies of, for example, Norman Mailer, who I'm going to use as an example in this podcast. Um, but there are, there's a case here in, in my own um, experience with Sylvia Plath where the answer to one biography is, has been my answer to my own biographies. I spoke a bit about this in a previous podcast, uh, but I'm going to say a little bit more about uh, that phenomenon, why a biographer would write more than one biography of the same subject. And I want to start, uh, what got me, got me sort of galvanized on this was, I was asked for a 250-word statement for a booklet that was being put together for the 100th anniversary of Norman Mailer's birth. Uh, this is for a conference in 2023 at the University of Texas. And here's my 250-word uh, statement. It's supposed to be about what about Mailer sort of inspired you to write about him. But as I wrote this, uh, it was a kind of process of self-discovery. I had never quite put all of um, what I say here in the 250 words, I had never quite put it to myself in quite this way, which is, I think, one of the reasons why I write, to discover what I really think, or in a sense, where I've been in my thinking. So here's the 250 words. Norma Mailer brought me to biography. His influence arose in the armies of the night, demonstrating the powerful, imaginative possibilities of nonfiction. Then he won me over entirely with Marilyn, showing how insightful speculation, coupled with the factual record, could meld into a compelling conception of the biographical subject. He frankly admitted what he did not know and what probably could not be known about his subject, but he kept pressing ahead, taking in what other biographers had discovered while pointing out the gaps and flaws in their narratives. He showed how a biography could grow out of the previous biographies of the subject without losing a personal authoritative voice. Until then, I had not considered the immense possibilities of a genre that remains incomplete and yet ever expanding. There are not many novelists of the first rank who turn to biography but Mailer did so without apology. He not only inspired me to write biography, 
but also to write a series of reviews, articles, and books about the history and practice of the genre. Biography, Mailer taught me, is cumulative and incremental, a dialogue of sources and methods, which is why the answer to one biography is another biography. Mailer's Many Marylands, as I tried to show in a recent article, reflect an awareness that his knowledge of the biographical subject must move forward and grow, an awareness I have taken to heart in my third and fourth biographies of Sylvia Plath. That's the end of the statement. I should say that the article on Mailer that I refer to, called Mailer's Marylands, is in a new book a collection of essays uh, called Norman Mailer in Context. It's published by Cambridge University Press. They've done a number of these volumes. They've done Sylvia Plath in Context. Uh, they have done William Faulkner in Context, and now they're doing Norman Mailer in Context, and there'll be many more such volumes in the series, I'm sure. I was struck by my own comment that biography is a genre that remains incomplete and yet ever-expanding. To me, that's the thrilling part of biography. Um, as to my third and fourth biographies of Sylvia Plath, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, I wrote and published, rather, in uh, 2013, um, my first biography of Sylvia Plath, called American Isis, The Life and Art of Sylvia Plath. And in that biography, I took an approach, which is not what all biographers do. Sometimes it's just called, you know, so-and-so a life, so-and-so a biography. Uh, but sometimes biographies, even if they're chronological as mine was, are thematically oriented. And I wanted to couple, accomplish a couple of things in the first Plath biography. One, the mythic quality of her life and the fact that she was aware of the mythic quality, that she was creating a mythology about herself and that she was specifically concerned with the figure of Isis. And I show how that's so. And that she was attracted to, to other um, figures, modern figures, who had become mythological, like Marilyn Monroe, for example. In that book, I treated a dream that she had of Marilyn Monroe and wrote about in her journal. I could have added a lot more, which I've, I've learned in my subsequent work on Sylvia Plath, about her fascination with movie stars that goes back to pre-teens, uh, to her fascination with Elizabeth Taylor and Hedy Lamarr and Rita Hayworth. Uh, and there are, I have found more references to Marilyn Monroe in her letters as well. Recently published two volumes of letters. That was one of the things I was trying to do with Sylvia Plath. The other thing in American Isis is I wanted to pay attention, as other biographers had not, how much she was part of the interested in and part of the popular culture of the 1940s. Her uh, avid listening to radio programs. Uh, and I'm going to mention in a moment another book uh, where I deal with that aspect of Plath uh, even more, even more because I've learned more. There's more data, more facts. The second book, The Last Days of Sylvia Plath, really focused, as the title suggests, on her last days, though her last days in context, that is the context of her entire life. 
pointing out various things about her life, not that that um, predestined her to take her own life, to be a suicide, but the factors that were important to her, um, the weather that was important to her, the uh, congregation of individuals she liked to have around her. And I tried to show how many of these elements at the very end of her life were missing. She lacked them. And that uh, what we do, not just suicide, but who we are as people, is in a sense contingent. It is partly depends on the circumstances and the order and sequence of events may very well um, determine who we are. That's not determinism, but that concatenation of events can sometimes shape what happens to a person's life. I think of a scene from Conrad's Nostromo, where one of the main characters, De Coog, uh, finds himself alone on a boat out at sea, and he faces the emptiness of his himself, of his identity, and and he he goes over. He 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 drops himself into the water. He commits suicide. Uh, in other circumstances, in the society in which they could function, that suicide might not have been possible or probable, uh, maybe conceivable. Um, but it was those precise circumstances. So that's what I was really focusing on in the last days of Sylvia Plath. I was trying to show how not only the circumstances of her life, but the circumstances of Ted Hughes' life made it more probable, at least in retrospect, that he would survive her. And, but I also wanted to show that there were aspects of his character and of his personality that were or could be termed suicidal every bit as much as Sylvia Plath has been called suicidal. So both of those biographies, in a sense, had uh, a mission, a theme, an approach into the subject's life. The obvious problem with such books, uh, as good as they might be, and of course I think mine are very good, um, nevertheless, they leave things out. Once you determine a narrative, once you're set on a course, and once that narrative is following a theme that you think explains or helps to explain the subject's life, you're going to leave things out, sometimes important things, simply because they don't contribute to your narrative. That's not the same thing as, you know, often of dissertations. They, they talk about an argument being thesis-ridden because the writer of the thesis can't see other aspects of the subject. That is one, one of the drawbacks of doing a thesis, of doing a theme, of a biography that has, in a sense, a thesis. I remember the comments of uh, one of uh, on my dissertation committee. I did a dissertation on Faulkner, and one of the faculty members on my dissertation committee uh, had high praise for my dissertation. But he said I made Faulkner very cerebral, uh, and I think that that cerebral quality uh, of Faulkner had a lot to do with my own studies in historiography, for example. Someone might read Faulkner's Sense of the Past in a very different way with a different intellectual background or less cerebral 
background. There are other ways to read Faulkner, obviously. And there was nothing wrong with the dissertation committee member pointing that out, pointing out, again, the limitations or the confines of how I wanted to tell the story. So how can you get away from that as a biographer? Well, as I, I think I probably did say in one of my earlier podcasts, one of the reasons why I wanted to do Sylvia Plath Day by Day, which has turned out to be a two-volume work, I'll explain that in a moment, but one of the reasons why I wanted to take the day-by-day -day approach is I can put back in things which don't fit a narrative, don't fit a theme, uh, that are more the raw data. So that, as I say in the introduction to the first volume of Sylvia Plath, Day by Day, you can almost make up your own biography of Sylvia Plath by the evidence that I'm going to lay out, from you, lay out for you from her diaries, journals, uh, other prose narratives. Um, records, um, all kinds of evidence of a subject's life can go into day by day. It's two volumes because she was such an avid recorder of her own life, beginning her diaries at the age of 12 and continuing them, sometimes sporadically, but to the last days of her life. Of course, one of the great losses to Platt biography is the, is the journal that uh, Hughes destroyed and also one that he said he lost. We're still hoping uh, that he wasn't telling the truth and then both those volumes, those journals will show up. But so far, no luck. Well, that's three. American Isis, Last Days of Sylvia Plath, Sylvia Plath Day by Day, surely that's enough. But you know, as I was uh, working on Sylvia Plath Day by Day, I started uncovering all this other material especially Plath's reading as a young woman from the ages of 12 to 20. Many, many children's books, biographies, some of them set in Europe, some of them set in other places abroad. Um, it gave me such an overwhelming sense of how well-read she was, uh, not just in the classics of literature as she gets into her college years, but earlier than that in those children's books, that she was reading, where she was learning about Poland, for example, medieval Poland. She was learning about all kinds of different lives and cultures, which I think do get into her later poems and make her more of a historical poet than maybe people realize. So, as I said in a tweet this morning, it's like I've written a five-volume biography, the two volumes of Day by Day, Last Days of Sylvia Plath, American Isis, and also The Making of Sylvia Plath. The Making of Sylvia Plath uh, is more than what Andrew Wilson does when he, he writes his book, Sylvia Plath, before Ted Hughes. I am going to go right to the end of Plath's life, but I want to show how much of that early life goes into the late poems, a poem like Cut, which has some references to the Revolutionary War, which she knew a lot about, the American Revolutionary War. She, she didn't just study it in school. She drew maps. Uh, she, she wrote long reports. Uh, she had a kind of detailed knowledge, demographic knowledge of history that, uh, that is alluded to in poems like Cut, for example, which I do deal with in the last days of Sylvia Plath, but I want to say much more about now in terms of her growing up uh, and what, what, 
what war and bloodletting meant to her, because that's what the poem is about, where she nearly cuts off her thumb uh, while she's preparing food. So I want to uh, in, also say in a poem like Daddy, um, of, people talk, of course, about its allusions uh, to Ted Hughes and to her own father. Uh, but I want to talk about the poem in terms of what she knew about fatherhood, what she knew about parenting, uh, and again, um, looking at her in ways that that um, maybe escaped me, didn't draw I did I, some of the evidence I didn't have when I was writing those earlier books. So we come back to this phrase that I was writing about in Mailer about about biography, the immense possibilities of a genre that remains incomplete and yet ever-expanding. Thanks for listening, and I hope I get my technical issues resolved because I know you don't want to listen to just me. But thanks for listening.